0: And upon marking Psalm number 103, I would invite you to turn in your Bible to some of the passages that we're about to consider this morning. A moment ago, we just read from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. We'll also be spending a little time in Matthew chapter 19 before our lesson today is over. It's so good that we've each been permitted to assemble this morning to offer our worship unto God. It is the first day of not only this week, but of this month, and what better way could we have started it than to make observation of gathering in the name of the the God of heaven this way. Certainly as we come to the lesson this morning, maybe the title is already one that has developed into a few questions or at least considerations in your mind, Insufficient Reasons to Marry. When Denise and I attended Polishing the pit last year, so in 2018, one of the lessons that Brother Melvin O'Tay brought was, in essence, a lesson that was related to this one. I took at least the thought of that, kind of developed it a little bit differently, or at least some ways a little bit distinct from his, but that was the source for, for my thoughts on this lesson this morning. It occurred to me, as, as I was pondering the nature of that lesson that day, And also its implication, how wonderful is the thought of marriage. The Word of God lifts it up so highly. It is set before us not only in America, but in virtually every civilization known to man as a beautiful, as a wonderful, as a powerfully appropriate thing. And yet, despite all of that, as you'll notice upon this slide before you, God pours out upon us so many bountiful blessings and many of them surround the family. I thought it was interesting as we celebrated Thanksgiving, and it was a time of family. Brother Gary made note of that in the announcements this morning. A time in which you come together, those that you love and cherish, and those that are kin to you. Many times the thoughts that develop from that take us to a time when a man and a woman married, and from their offspring, has come a family, perhaps consisting of dozens of individuals, bound together by their kinship one to another, but bound together by a familial relationship. And so it seemed appropriate to think some today about insufficient reasons to marry. This next slide will be one that starts that journey. And it does so by first highlighting the incredible positive that the Word of God presents relative to the institution of marriage. God designed it. It is not the brainchild of any man or any group of men anywhere. As I mentioned a moment ago, as far as anthropological records point out, every civilization in the history of our planet is such that marriage has been an occurrent thing. Now for it to be that widespread... And to be that a current, what a beautiful thing and what a remarkable handiprint of God's blessing on the human family. Jesus said it like this in Mark 10, verses 6 and 7. From the beginning, God made them male and female. And it was at that point, you may recall, in the marriage of Adam and Eve that we have that which has continued down the stream of time ever since. Isn't it amazing in Genesis 2? in the consideration of all the features of the creation week. And truly, it was a fantastic set of ideas. Light, firmament, the dry land, day number three, as well as the plant life, all the celestial bodies in the heavens on day four, the appreciation of life in the oceans and the air on day five, and yet amongst all of that, and even the animal life on day six, Finally, it was said, let us make man in our image. God fashioned this being unlike any animal He had made, because Adam wasn't an animal. He was made in the image of God. The problem was, Adam was alone. All the animals had their particular others of the, of the other gender, but it wasn't so with Adam. And yet God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, took a rib from his side, fashioned a woman, brought her to the man. And now Adam had a helpmate, one suitable for him. And with regard to that, of course, verses 23 and 24 of Genesis chapter 2, Adam replied and said, She was taken out of man. She should be called woman. And in the next verse, so beautifully amazingly and unforgettably says, "...therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh." With those features of Genesis chapter 2 put before us, you'll notice the next matter on the slide. This issue then in marriage, it provides remarkable love, companionship, and so many of the things which of course are etched on the pages of the Word of God relative to the splendid beauty of marriage. I've asked you simply to notice in that regard, it would seem to me that one of the highest appreciations anywhere with regard to marriage is the fact that the relationship of Jesus to His church is compared to it. That by itself must indicate the lofty appreciation and the lofty place that the institution of marriage holds. You'll notice about the middle of that slide then, That brings us to maybe note this, perhaps it could be easily wondered. So Adam and Eve were married, but then in the next chapter, they chose to disobey God. They sinned. They did the very thing He told them not to do. Did that dissolve the union known as marriage? After all, that made a fundamental change in many other particulars of earth. The earth was now going to bring forth thorns and thistles. It was going to be a very hard place to make a living, at least in general. But might we all take note, that did not dissolve the marriage union. Adam and Eve were married both before and after the sin in Eden. Easily enough in that consideration. Perhaps it would never have been thought that it would have to be emphasized. But we have now come to a time when surely it must be. God's design for marriage is one man for one woman. It is not one man for one man and one woman for one woman. In fact, that has been condemned really since virtually the very dawn of time. And yet today we seemingly live in a time when society is for some reason wrestling with this. The problem, of course, has been and continues to be that people don't use the Word of God as the basis for this. Didn't Jesus say, Have ye not read, Matthew 19:4, that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? If folks would just read and trust the Bible, it would put to rest all the sin concerning matters, such as homosexual marriage. But otherwise, the next point on that slide... Marriage creates one flesh. Three times in the Word of God, that explicit phrase is used. Once in Genesis chapter 2, once in Matthew 19, and once in Ephesians 5. That man and his wife are bound together in mission, in purpose, in unison, in so many particulars in life such that the Word of God describes them as being one flesh. How beautiful How truly remarkable to consider it. And yet, with that in mind, marriage is permanent. Our land has come to basically demand and thrive on the reality of divorce on demand. I simply don't want to be married anymore, so I'll get a divorce. But God never intended it this way. In Romans chapter 7, a man is bound to his wife as long as she's alive furthermore that woman bound to her husband as long as he's alive God's intent was permanence his intent was for it to in fact proceed onward because this doesn't it say that God hates divorce Malachi two sixteen. with regard to all of this one last thought on that slide at least the key idea in marriage is to get each other to heaven and any children that, of course, may come from that union, and those who are blessed to know those two members in that union. But, of course, the idea is to journey together, hand in hand. Can two walk together except to be agreed, Amos 3.3? But to journey that man and his wife toward the golden shores of heaven. Sweet, powerful, beautiful. Brother James Watkins so frequently referred to it as paradise on earth. But with all that in mind, couldn't we ask these questions? If marriage is this grand, if it is this productive and beautiful, then shouldn't one hastily perhaps seek to be married no matter what? The answer to that is no. The answer to that are really the matters concerning the remainder of this lesson this morning. There are some considerations, some supposed reasons, which really aren't good enough to mandate getting married. Let's look at some of them for the remainder of the lesson, the remainder of our time this morning. Let's start with this one. Wealth, money. Maybe that guy comes from a rich family. Or maybe that woman is rather well to do given the business her father has. Maybe I should marry her, some gentleman might say, just so I might have access to all that wealth. That's a terrible reason to get married. Because after all, you'll notice on that slide, how many things does the Word of God remind us about not only the practicality of wealth and money, but the way in which it should be utilized. In 1 Timothy 6 verses 9 and 10, "...they that will be rich bring upon themselves destruction and perdition." Why, Paul? For the love of money is the root of all evil." which while some coveted after they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many ungodly sorrows. It's almost certain that there will come difficult times, even in regard to the money. What's going to happen then? When the bank account gets low or when tragedy occurs and that money is gone, what will happen then? Will there be enough fortitude? Will there be enough love to stay the course despite those challenges? if the marriage was only predicated for money, it's almost sure that there's going to be some tremendous problems due to the fact of surrounding that money. For that reason, the next matter on the slide, I've asked you to notice this. When the Word of God describes the considerations of marriage and the beauty that goes with it, what about verses such as Ephesians 5.25 and Ephesians 5.33? Wherein there the husband was said, "You love your wife as Christ loved the church." It doesn't say anything about love or if she's rich. It doesn't say anything about love or if she's wealthy. And the woman is told in verse thirty-three, "You respect and reverence your husband." Doesn't say do so only if he's wealthy. Money is an exceedingly poor basis for a successful marriage. But look at the second one, social status. Someone might be quick to argue. If I'm married, it'll look good for me at the office. I might be more likely to get a promotion. I might be more likely to, in fact, be able to appreciate a position whereby it might work advantageously for me otherwise. As I said before, another terrible reason to get married. Marriage is not to be based on merely a social consideration like that. Look at considerations such as this one. James 4 verse 4 still says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. I shouldn't be marrying a person simply to do better in the business world, simply to in fact have a higher social status in the community. That's an awfully poor reason to build a successful marriage. I've asked you to notice in that regard, Solomon tried this. Solomon tried this, accumulating 700 wives and 300 concubines, 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us. And the text informs us he primarily did this to acquire peace with the surrounding nations. After all, if I marry the daughter of that king of the nearby country, he won't be apt to declare war on me. Solomon had a lot of wives. Was it good marriages? Was it a circumstance surrounding the nature of what was pleasing to God? And we know the answer to that. Verses 7 and following of that same chapter tell us those wives turned his heart away from God. And though Solomon at one time was so wise, he sure was foolish then. Interesting, isn't it, that social status doesn't by itself make a good foundation for a godly marriage. Look at the third one. Isn't it easy sometimes to appreciate a lot of pressure sometimes with regard to marriage? Someone may say, every one of my high school friends is married and got children by now. And here I have reached age 28, 29, I'm not even dating anybody. And maybe that person begins to wonder, as soon as I find someone, maybe I should move rather quickly on toward marriage. Well, might we at least highlight this. Don't just get married to be like everybody else. No one should get married just for that reason. It may well be others that you know, and many of them have already entered into marriage, and perhaps there appears to be happiness in those marriages. But don't let that be the sole reason as to why one rushes into it. I've asked you to consider some of these thoughts. Galatians 1 verse 10, a principle that Paul stated, but how appropriate. If I should please men, I am not the servant of Christ. Now Paul was in fact making that statement relative to his life in service in the church. But you and I know the principle is a rather far-reaching one. If you and I bend ourselves to please everyone else, we're soon going to find ourselves very miserable. Surely in the entering of marriage, it's much more serious than this. It's a lifetime with that man or a lifetime with that woman. And it's not to be entered just because some friends of mine think it's a good idea or just because others are perhaps asking questions. Don't you think it's time you get married? Aren't you about old enough to get married? Maybe to please others, or at least to be like them, let that not be the sole reason. You'll notice in Genesis 2.24, perhaps at this point we could say, again, when God married Adam and Eve, I realize there were no other humans on earth to please. But isn't the statement an impressive one? A man shall leave father and mother... Now remember, Adam and Eve, there were no parents of them on earth, and yet as a proclamation of what was to occur in future times, the man and woman to leave one another in terms of their parents and cleave to each other. Their union is to be based on their love and their commitment and their fidelity to each other. These three reasons then pretty poor ones for getting married. Let's look at a fourth one. I've simply listed this one as pressure. In our world sometimes, especially, it's easy to feel oneself beneath a bit of a load of pressure. Sometimes even parents or grandparents or other close relatives can exert this. After all, in a former day, it wasn't unusual for a man and woman to be married in their teens. And today, maybe a person reaches age 25 and grandma or grandpa says, I think it's time, son, you got married. It's time you set up housekeeping. Well, maybe under a pressure, and it's not that they intended it to be felt that way, but that youngster, that younger person may begin to behave and act in a way to where they rush into what ultimately will be a disaster. And therefore, could I ask you to notice these verses in Numbers 32, 23. Moses, in speaking to the children of Israel, told them, be sure your sin will find you out. If you enter into marriage just because somebody else, though well-meaning they may be, just because someone else exerts that pressure, you may find a very unhappy marriage. A marriage fraught with difficulties and problems and tension and quarreling. And of course, that isn't a good situation. One last verse I would call to your attention. 1 Corinthians 15, when you and I think about pressure, even as it relates to a subject like this one, the context, of course, there is slightly distinct, but I would urge us to think about the principle. The principle, of course, reading somewhat like this. Evil communications corrupt good manners. And the verse begins with a don't be deceived. Now, I say that to perhaps bring before us, so if a person is feeling some pressure, maybe feeling it from parents, kinfolks, relatives, neighbors, good friends, or otherwise, and you rush into this, this thing called marriage, you realize you may rush into it with someone who's really not that suitable for you, someone whose perspectives, whose outlook is quite different from your own, and quite frankly a lot of challenges may come out of it. Good morals that otherwise would have been true may be hard to keep up. Maybe number five, aside from the matter of pressure, someone else might say, life is of course so filled with responsibility. There's so many things to do every week, every month, every day even. It'd sure be nice to have somebody to help lift the burdens and the loads that I'm having to face. That by itself is no good reason for marriage either. Just to have a partner, if you please, to help do some of the work that you and I are called upon to do in life. A wife is far more than that, and so is a husband. To share responsibility, I would ask you to notice, it is so beautifully true that the phrase that was used in Genesis 2 about a help meet for Adam a helper suitable for him. Sure enough, a wife is very helpful to her husband, and a husband ought to be very helpful to his wife as they journey hand-in-hand through life, but it's not merely entering marriage just to have somebody to mow my yard for me or just have somebody cook my meals for me. It needs to be a far better reason than that. There has to be a greater basis. That would lead to such a shallowness in marriage. Could I call to your attention verses like these? If you're just looking for a partner, you can hire a local handyman to take care of that. If you're just looking for someone to cook you meals, restaurants will do that for you. But a marriage is much more than that. Where is love in that kind of consideration? 1 Corinthians 13 describes various attributes in love. And later on, again, husbands are specifically told you love your wife as Christ loved His church. Nothing to do there with merely a sharing of work or a workload along that line. So you see, some of these reasons our world may at least indirectly try to claim would be at least possible reasons. But you and I have learned the Bible has a very different story to tell. Look at number six. I suppose at least in days gone by, it would have been maybe possible for a man to think that, I'll just get me a cook and some other person to clean the house and she'll be my wife. Now clearly in the Old Testament patriarchal days, there was a very different kind of behavior in the family. But you and I know today, that that by itself would not be a very good reason to enter into marriage. A wife is not a servant. She's not a slave. And for that matter, the husband isn't either. Isn't it interesting that nowhere in the New Testament, although the words slave and servant frequently occur, they are not used in the connection to marriage that way. And so it is, that may I ask you to notice Proverbs 18.22. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. That individual who, again, could enter into marriage in a blessed way with her husband and do so that, the Proverbs writer said, is good. In the very next chapter, a prudent wife is from the Lord, Proverbs 19.14. Maybe it is to be said in that connection at least that these six reasons we've looked at so far are, are not sufficient ones to enter into this lifelong partnership, this union called marriage. I would suggest there's more things, though, that might be mentioned. Have you ever known of someone who perhaps enters into marriage just because of spite? Just to get even with dad and mom or even somebody else? Maybe you've heard of stories of someone entering into marriage that way. Could I ask, did it ever turn out well? I would offer, there's a Bible consideration in this one. As you think about the man we call Esau, what comes to mind about him? I suppose we're all readily in a position to remember he was the one tricked by his brother on two occasions. And on one of them, of course, there was a lot of help from his own mother in that. And how tragic, how sad that such a scenario developed in Genesis 27 But may I ask, what happened in Esau's life after that? Well, you remember that, of course, Jacob was sent off into a distant place to find a woman suitable for him to marry. Because, you see, Isaac and Rebekah didn't want Jacob marrying one of the women who lived in that part of the world. You go and find somebody of the kinfolk that would be more respectable toward the things of heaven. How did Esau react seeing that Jacob was sent away that way. You remember what happened in Genesis 28, verses 6 and following. He saw that these women didn't please his parents. And so guess who he married? If I may paraphrase, well, I'll get my dad mom. I'll marry one of these women around here that they don't like. I'll marry some of these women here that they don't particularly favor. Did it turn out well for Esau? It's true that God blessed him physically in a number of ways, but the description of that chapter concerning those women and the nature of what they led his heart to is not good. So may I say, surely entering marriage just to get even with somebody or just out of spite to one's parents or even anybody else, that would be a terrible reason to enter into marriage. You'll notice that that kind of situation without doubt will make a tense field of marriage because its foundation will be weak at best. And it'll be faulty. And if it's just to get even with somebody else, it's this person one is going to be living with, not them. Isn't it true then? Surely there must be other reasons than this. Maybe there's another one. Perhaps this one is one we hear more about these days. And maybe it's one that we've witnessed on a number of occasions. Could I simply call it lust? Perhaps it isn't that unusual for a young man, young woman, perhaps even a little older, but their hormones are rather excitable and they are wanting to know one another in a physical way, but yet they have some understanding, you see, that God would call such a thing fornication. And so rather than waiting any longer, let's just get married. And without knowing one another very well, and without understanding one another to the degree that would be desirable, they kind of rush into the consideration of marriage just so that the physical aspect might be enjoyed with approval of God. Maybe it would be easy to say in a connection such as that when they've entered into marriage, at least prompted somewhat by an element in lust... We want to know one another that way, and these other matters are tangential or at least not as important for the moment. Could we consider a few thoughts about that? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addresses somewhat concerning this. And he does point out that it isn't good to burn in passion. And in that consideration, verse 5, he does offer the thought that it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so certainly there is some consideration for this, but could you and I give advice? If someone were to come to us and they shared these thoughts, what advice would we give them as they contemplate entering marriage? Surely would we not say the flames of passion, though strong they are, are such that being married to this person 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, until death warrants you knowing this person better than this knowing the appreciation of what's important to them what is most significant in their life do they love the Lord and will they help you get to heaven or are the flames of passion blinding your eyes to the point where you're somewhat rushing a bit too quickly into this you'll notice on that slide Lust by itself is not a good reason to enter marriage. There's no doubt the intimate side of marriage is a blessed, beautiful thing. But realize there's so many responsibilities that come along with it. And so many other particulars in marriage for which that's only one part of it. Marriage is so much more than that. Look at some of these ideas. Could I suggest, and it'll dovetail rather nicely with our Sunday morning Bible study, consider Samson, a man as great as he could have been, a man as powerful as he was strength-wise, and yet what was it that was able to crack his nature? What was it that was able to bring him to ruin? It was lust. It was lust. He had a weakness for the women, and may I say, It was women, not of God's choosing. It was women that were of foreign nationalities, and despite the wisdom of his parents, despite the counsel of his parents, despite the teaching of the Word of God, that seemingly mattered not. He saw a beautiful woman. He wanted her, and he determined to have her. Many of the things that we shall study in the coming Sunday mornings about what came to pass as a result of that will truly be great lessons for each of us. But could I just summarize it here by saying, Samson is certainly one of the grandest Bible examples of what can happen if you go into marriage just because of lust. If you enter into it just to satisfy that fleshly side of the human nature, maybe it's fair to conclude that slide by saying, all that that might well do is make an adulterous marriage. Didn't Jesus put it like this in Matthew 19, 9? Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. This particular woman might be pretty to look at, but she's already been married and she was not divorced lawfully by the things of God. She is not a candidate for a godly marriage regardless what she looks like. And you could turn that around to the man. Here's a man, perhaps handsome he could be. He may well be a good provider with a good job, but he has been previously divorced for an unscriptural reason. He is not a candidate for a scriptural marriage. That's just the way the Bible teaches it. And therefore, to enter into marriage at that point with a man or woman like that, you just enter into an adulterous marriage that will condemn your soul to hell. Is it worth it? Is that a wise decision? You and I know in Revelation 22, the very last chapter in the Bible, among those that will be sent to hell are fornicators, whoremongers, those who have been involved in marriages not pleasing to God. You and I would appreciate a lot of reasons then that wouldn't be good ones to enter into marriage. But could I say that we started this lesson by looking at the beauty of the way God did design marriage. Marriage, that beautiful arrangement that was the very design of God, one man and one woman for life, committed to God, committed to each other. Because Matthew nineteen six says, "...what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder." When that man and his wife are bound together to the law of God, They'll be strong. They will overcome whatever challenges they may face. And they shall do so because it's founded upon the great rock, which is the teaching of the Word of God. Entering into marriage for any of these reasons we've studied in some detail today, they're poor reasons. They would not lead in all likelihood to a beautiful, loving, stable marriage. But a marriage that will be fraught with difficulties because there will be so much uncertainty And so much suspicion. Isn't it awful when that suspicion raises its ugly head and jealousy or envy reigns supreme? Most of the time, that's what would result from these eight reasons. I hope today we've been reminded about the sweetness of God's design of marriage. And we've been prompted that if we can give advice to others as they're contemplating this, we could do so and ask some good leading questions that might assist them in considering marriage as God would have them to consider it. Today, are you a faithful child of God? That makes by far the best marriage partner, a person who loves God more than anybody else and who will do what God says above all else. That will make by far the best wife, the best husband, the best union together because they're relying on God's wisdom and they're relying on His teaching, not their own. Today, if we could be of assistance to anyone in your response to the gospel's call of invitation, maybe to become a child of God, you must, according to the Lord, believe in Him with all your heart. You must repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you'll do that, that will, of course, allow Him to add you to the church, and you'll be able to walk faithfully till death. If you have become a child of God and have known the blessedness of that way of life but have chosen to walk away from it. Don't you know the peril you're in? Don't you know the danger you're in? Don't you know how it's causing problems in your marriage or in other avenues of life? Make it right. Jesus wants you to. The God of heaven wants you to. And certainly we would love to assist you in whatever way we can by praying to God. If you'll repent of those sins, if you'll confess them, He's promised to forgive them. 1 John 1 verse 9 Today, if we could be of assistance, won't you come while together we stand and sing?